for our scripture reading comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. God's word says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Father, our Lord, we just want to pause and thank you that you have brought us in on what you're doing by making a people that we can call you our God. And yet you are delighted to call us your people. God, we, we long to have your law upon our hearts, written, inscribed on our hearts. Would you soften our hearts tonight, Lord God, as we want to hear you, that you would teach us about what it means and what it looks like to be righteous as you define that word. God, would you help us to get to a place where no one needs to be taught any longer because we all know you intimately and accurately. God, would you help us right now with how we worship you, that we would know you as our Lord, as one who takes care of us, who invites us in on a new perspective and a new vision for life and what it means to flourish as a human being in this broken world. God, we want you to be a part of what we're trying to do here. And that's just to worship your name, the name above all names, Jesus Christ, in this place. So Lord, would you be a part of this place and hear our, our worship and our cries for help. God, would you bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I was headed from our Cordova home group to our Bartlett home group. And uh, I must have been headed there pretty quickly because I was headed on a back road in Bartlett uh, when I stop at a stop sign and look in my rearview mirror and I said, wow, that, I don't remember that car being behind me. And I, I make the turn and all of a sudden I see blue lights flash in my rearview mirror. So I pull over. I roll down my window. I put my hands on the steering wheel. And I just wait for the police officer to come to my window. He says, uh, do you realize how fast you were going? I said, no, sir. He says, You're, you were doing 50 and a 35. So, <laughs> he goes, uh, where are you headed in such a hurry? And I had to, I, I laughed audibly. I said, I'm going to teach a Bible study. <laughs> he says, uh, who are you with? 
I said, Bellevue Baptist Church. He says, all right, can I have your driver's license? I said, yes, sir. Give him my driver's license. He heads back to the squad car and checks to see if there are any warrants out for my arrest. Fortunately for me, there aren't. And he comes back and he says, all right, I'm going to let you off on a warning tonight. All right, you need to slow down. I said, yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. So I take my driver's license, roll up my window, and I proceed to head to David Zarnick's house in Bartlett. And the cop follows me all the way there just to check and see, am I being honest? Am I being truthful about heading to the Bible study? Yes, officer, I am. He, he sees the, the streets lined with cars outside a house. And okay, he, he passes on. I never see or hear from him again. And then I have to prepare to teach and preach on what God has to say about the law and the prophets and righteousness. What a blessing of God's providence on my life as I prepare to preach on this topic from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be again in Matthew chapter 5, looking at the Sermon on the Mount this evening, and a particularly um, deep and edifying passage of Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount is, again, found in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew records the teachings of Jesus Christ as he sits down with his disciples and the crowds as king and philosopher, to deliver this beautiful sermon. By the time Jesus begins the the body of his sermon, he has offered his listeners a new kingdom perspective on what it means to flourish as a human being in this broken world. And then right after that, that perspective that he offers up, he pairs with it a vision for what a valuable difference is made in this broken world by those who adopt the kingdom perspective. They are called, as Chad preached on last week, to be salt and light, to be the quality of salt and the boldness of light. Because Jesus has introduced some major concepts that are very different from what the scribes and the Pharisees often taught The passage that we're studying tonight serves as an introduction to reinterpreting righteousness. You've heard me say repeatedly that Matthew writes primarily to a Jewish audience, and we will see that displayed in this passage tonight as Jesus teaches about the law and the prophets. Jesus answers a question that every Christian at some point or another must ask and consider. What use is the old covenant to new covenant believers? What use is the Old Testament when we find our ground as Christians in the New Testament? Jesus will help us answer that question tonight. So if you will look with me, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 say this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments 
and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. That's some strong words used by Jesus. So let's start at the beginning of this passage where the king philosopher, that's Jesus, sets the record straight. The king philosopher sets the record straight. Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. There are some who portray Jesus as some revolutionary figure who made it a point to stir up trouble with the religious people of his day and to blaspheme their God on the way to an unfortunate but unsurprising death. Those people are more likely to picture Jesus spray-painting WWJD on the side of the temple in Jerusalem than believing that He is God in the flesh. One commentator says this, Jesus has not come haphazardly, irreverently, or thoughtlessly to attempt to abolish, overthrow, disregard, or snidely ignore the old covenant and God's work among His chosen people of the past. That's not the Jesus we see in the Scriptures. That's not the Jesus we see portrayed in the Bible. If we accept Matthew's record as holy Scripture, and I hope that you do, we know who Jesus is. And we understand that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who came to build His kingdom upon the law and the prophets, not abolish them. The Son of God came to honor the Father, not blaspheme Him. That word abolish is actually closer to the word demolish uh, in the Greek. It is a term used to break down something that has been built up or constructed. Uh, during my time of living in Kentucky, I did a, quite a bit of driving, specifically between Louisville and Frankfurt. And uh, on the way, in between, you see some beautiful horse farms. Uh, they're, they're farms that, uh, in stables that house these horses that have been bred to run in the derbies, right? The Kentucky derbies. And uh, they're gorgeous, beautiful stables, marvelous, awesome to look at while you're driving. But then you take some back roads and you start to see the old stables and the old barns and how broken and ready to fall over they are. And you think to yourself, someone needs to tear that down because it's a hazard. And we can think and imagine how there were some people back in Jesus' day that believed that about the law and the prophets. And, and maybe they were some of his hearers that were here that, there that day to hear from Jesus. And as he's talking, they say, I'm done with the law and the prophets. Give me Jesus. But they would be misguided in their thinking. Because Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. If I had to summarize the Gospel of Matthew in one word, I think I would choose the word fulfilled. Because that's exactly 
what Matthew is trying to get across in his use of that word over and over and over again. Matthew makes it a point to consistently show how Jesus fulfilled what had been written throughout the Old Testament. And that's what we mean when we say the law and the prophets. We're talking about the Old Testament. It's Jesus' Bible, the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. The words were written on scrolls and taught to the people in the temple in Jerusalem and many different synagogues throughout the Middle East. And anytime Matthew uses fulfill, he is intentionally pointing to previous revelation given to God's people. For instance, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 23, or 21 through 23, Matthew says and records, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then again in Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Not only does Matthew make these claims about Jesus, but from our passage in Matthew 5, we see that Jesus claimed it about himself. In doing so, Jesus establishes his authority as well as his intention. Jesus has the authority to teach on the law and the prophets because he intends to fulfill every bit of it. We are reminded by this word, fulfill, that Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful to his teachings every step of the way. He lived the perfect life that you and I could not live as we were enslaved to our lawlessness. Jesus is bringing about completion and bringing to completion all that God began to do in ancient times as it was recorded in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And then Jesus emphasizes this sense of completion and consummation with verse 18. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Did you hear that? Not a dot of an I, not a cross of a T, will go unused before the kingdom comes. Not the dot of an I or the cross of a T will go unused before the kingdom comes. So in this verse we see Jesus affirmed that the Old Testament remains necessary and profitable today. Jesus affirmed that the Old Testament remains necessary and profitable today. Uh, I'm a big fan. Some of you guys don't know this about me. I'm a big fan of classic rock. And in 1970, yeah, Jeremy Meister's like, yeah, I like that. 
Uh, I'm a big fan of classic rock. In 1978, Bob Seger and the Sil- Silver Bullet Band came out with old-time rock and roll. I see some of y'all nodding. Yeah, you get it. And uh, they in it, they sing, just take those old records off the shelf. I'll sit and listen to them by myself. Today's music ain't got the same soul. I like that old-time rock and roll. Don't try to take me to the disco. You'll never even get me out on the floor. In 10 minutes, I'll be late for the door. I like that old-time rock and roll. Now, I'm kind of picking up some old-time rock and roll vibes from Jesus in this passage. As if he was to say, just take that old Bible off the shelf. I'll sit and listen to God by myself. Today's rules ain't helping my soul. I like to pray with my open Bible, right? We know the Old Testament is profitable because in it we see important details about who God is and how he works. Who God is and how he works. But not only that, we also find it necessary because there are prophecies in the Old Testament that have been written and have not been fulfilled yet. And that's why I had us read from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 speaks of a day when Jesus will write his law on his people's hearts. And he's done that. We are new covenant believers. What Jeremiah was prophesying was about us as new covenant believers. At the same time, it speaks of a day when people won't have to teach one another. If that was the case, I wouldn't be up here, right? Because we would all know God rightly and accurately. And so we haven't reached that day and age yet, but it's coming. And the reason it was written down in Jeremiah is so that we would know it's coming. And one day it will be fulfilled. And so we await that day. And and one day, and possibly in our lifetime on this earth, we will see Jesus fulfill them. Every word, every letter, every marking of the Old Testament will have been used to the glory of God and the good of his people throughout space and time. At the moment, Jesus comes to consummate his kingdom and bring it to completion. What an encouragement for us to read our Bibles. This is the inspired word of God. All of it is breathed out by God and is profitable. It's infallible. It doesn't fail at what it's designed to do and what it claims to do, which is to to show you the power of God to save you in your sin and to help teach you how to live a righteous life that pleases the king philosopher, that pleases God. And what... And that is exactly why we have Matthew's record of Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, that he would teach us how to live a righteous life that is pleasing to him. And so we see the king philosopher reinterprets righteousness for his citizen students. The king philosopher, that's Jesus, reinterprets righteousness for his citizen students, that is to say his disciples. Now, one thing I have to cover before I start to show you how Jesus's definition of righteousness is greater than 
the understanding of righteousness to the scribes and Pharisees, I have to show you how Jesus' definition of righteousness is different from that of the Apostle Paul's righteousness. There are two kinds of biblical righteousness. Imputed and what I'm calling holy. That's W-H-O-L-L-Y holy, not H-O-L-Y holy. If you don't, if that's too confusing for you, you can call it whole person righteousness. So you have imputed righteousness and whole person or holy righteousness. I have to show you the difference uh, because it's vitally important. They're, they're using the same word, righteousness, but they're using it in two different ways. It'd be the same if I said, uh, you know, use the word missed, like I miss you. If I saw a cousin who I hadn't seen in a long time and said, I missed you, that'd be one thing. But if I'm aiming at my cousin in a game of laser tag and I said, I missed you, that'd be completely different. I'm using the same words in the same order, similar ways, but they mean two completely different things, don't they? And that's what we see with Paul's use of righteousness as well as Jesus and Matthew's use of righteousness. If I let you take Paul's version of righteousness and put it on this passage, that would be irresponsible. It wouldn't end well. You'd be like David Blaine holding on to 52 balloons without a parachute, right? You lift off, okay, but you're not going to land where or how you want to. Does that make sense? Some of y'all are like, David Blaine? I know many of you have read Paul's letter to the Romans recently and have studied what's called imputed righteousness. This is righteousness that you cannot work for. Rather, it has to be given to you. It has to be imputed to you by the work of another, namely Jesus Christ. This is imputed righteousness. Paul spends whole chapters talking about this concept that Jesus bestows upon all who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised, them, uh, raised Him from the dead, that they would be saved. Paul tells us this is how we are saved. It's by imputed righteousness. And he's right. But that isn't the type of righteousness that we find in the Sermon on the Mount here. Jesus commends something different to His listeners here. What Jesus esteems to us here is what I call holy righteousness or whole person righteousness. Holy righteousness is a righteousness that you can work towards. As you follow the teachings and the example of Jesus Christ, in short, it is whole person behavior that accords, it agrees with God's nature his will, and the coming kingdom. It's whole person behavior that agrees with God's nature, His will, and the coming kingdom. And in case you're not convinced, Matthew uses that term, righteous, to describe two people who are not Jesus. The first is Joseph, who we looked at earlier in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. There we see 
Matthew commending Joseph for doing the honorable thing before the angel had come to let him in on you know, the big plan to bring Jesus into this world. Joseph was going to do the honorable thing, not bringing scandal to, to Mary, not embarrassing her, but to do so quietly. And he's called righteous for doing so. And then secondly, we see John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, John the Baptist would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John the Baptist consented. So there you see a normal human being like John the Baptist being included in the righteous work of baptizing Jesus. Not because he had sin that he wanted to publicly repent of or, or show anything like that. He was showing how he relates to us as sinners and giving us a picture for what he's going to do in the cross, the death, and the resurrection. And, and John the Baptist is included in that work of righteousness. There is a kind of whole person behavior or way of being in the world that can be called righteous. Unflinchingly, it can be called righteous. And Jesus teaches us to practice it. And not only that, but to teach others to practice it. Look again at verses 19 and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Holy righteousness is the righteousness that Jesus esteems to his disciples over and above that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's the comparison that I want you to see, is that Jesus promotes holy righteousness over mere external righteousness. That's the comparison. The scribes and the Pharisees were perceived to be the righteous untouchables. You couldn't, you couldn't compare with the Pharisees and what they were trying to do. They were the religious officials of their day. They, and their strategy to be righteous was to create rules on top of God's law so that they didn't even come close to breaking God's law. They put on a show while their hearts remained unchanged. There was a sharp inconsistency between the inside and the outside. And Jesus, he lets them have it in Matthew 23. He stood up to the scribes and the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26, he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you, you're clean on the outside. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside also may be clean. He doesn't stop there. There's one after another. He says in verses 27 and 28 of the same chapter, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Do you get what he's saying? There's a sharp inconsistency between the inside and the outside. The Pharisees and the scribes remained unchanged at heart. And that's not what Jesus wants for his disciples. That's not what Jesus wants for you. And so you'll remember that the Beatitudes also talked about righteousness. It says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then again in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus wants for his disciples. That's what Jesus wants for you. Jesus desires a righteousness that rests not on a person's abilities. So please hear me say that. It's a righteousness that rests on the king's accomplishment. The king philosopher draws lawbreakers in to live a better way to show they belong in the kingdom that is to come. Which leads to our widely misunderstood last verse in this passage. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus demands holy righteousness to enter his kingdom. Jesus demands holy righteousness to enter his kingdom. Again, this is not imputed righteousness. We're tempted to jump to that interpretation because if we're honest, we don't like the way this verse sounds. It's uncomfortable. It sounds like it's up to us to live righteously and earn our place in the coming kingdom. But we know better. The king is the one who earned our place in the coming kingdom. And yet, at the same time, we respond to the king's initial work by living up to his expectation for us as his disciples. You can be at ease. Because God doesn't want you to perform like the scribes and the Pharisees. It's not about your works that seem holy. It's not about your Instagram pic of your quiet time. It's not about you sitting in the Sunday sermon. It's not about collecting sacred moments like baptism and service projects and prayer meetings, although those are good things. You can do all those things and be a modern day scribe and Pharisee. What Jesus is looking for in your life is consistency. Consistency between your heart and your life. Between what you do when someone's watching and what you do when no one's watching. 
between what you say you will do and what you actually do. Between what you want and what God wants for you. That is holy righteousness that Jesus expects of His disciples. That is the righteousness that you have to have to enter the coming kingdom. And if you're still not convinced, I want to take you a couple passages over to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 say this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you're concerned about your place in God's kingdom, start by doing the will of God. By peering into what He has revealed about Himself through the Holy Scriptures. Learn about who He is and how He operates in this broken world. Discover God's promises and present them back to Him in prayer. Cling to the Gospel and how Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to you. And at the same time, live holy, righteous lives that prove that you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and through the grave. Don't get it twisted. Jesus makes it clear. You enter the kingdom, the coming kingdom, with holy behavior that conforms to God's nature, His will, and the coming kingdom. You enter the coming kingdom with holy behavior that conforms to God's nature, His will, and the coming kingdom. Have you ever been told to act like you belong here? Maybe you were at a fancy dinner or a nice museum. And you start acting a fool only to have your mom or dad look at you and say, straighten up, act like you belong here. Jesus has a certain expectation for how his disciples are to live in this world as his kingdom comes. And I got news for you. It isn't how the world lives. It's how the king lives in the kingdom. Thus, you enter the coming kingdom with holy behavior that conforms to God's nature, His will, and the coming kingdom. Jesus goes on to flesh out what holy righteousness looks like with six different topics that we're going to cover in the weeks to come. He talks about anger, lust, divorce, commitments, retaliation, and enemies. 
Jesus says. He forms a pattern by saying, you have heard it said, and then he declares what they've learned, but I tell you, and he gives his reinterpretation of righteousness. He's reinterpreting righteousness one topic at a time. I used to think that Jesus was raising the bar to an impossible standard that we can never live up to just to see our need for Him. But that's not it at all. That's not what He's doing. Because we don't need help seeing how we don't measure up. All it takes is some blue lights in your rear view mirror. We don't need help. The law is just, it does it just fine. Jesus isn't raising the bar to an impossible standard. In fact, in saying that, we're accusing Jesus of doing the very thing that he condemns the scribes and the Pharisees of actually doing. Instead, the king philosopher teaches what he deemed righteous in his coming kingdom so that we, his disciples, would strive to live it out and to teach others to live it out with us. I don't know why Jesus chooses the six topics that he does, but here's a simple way you can apply tonight's passage. Ask yourself this question. If Jesus lived as me right now in my current circumstances, what would he do with the problems that I face? If Jesus lived as me right now in my current circumstances, what would he do with the problems that I face? If Jesus lived as Andrew Forrest Cross, how would he pastor the young adults at Bellevue Baptist Church? If Jesus lived as Eric Opperman, how would he manage shipping containers around the Mid-South? If Jesus lived as you, how would he handle the grudge you're holding against another Christian? If Jesus lived as you, how would he honor his commitments to his family and to his church? If Jesus lived as you, how would he go about asking for help and for prayer? The king philosopher has shown us how to live, and it's righteous. If you are his, then he expects you to live. A holy, righteous life.